Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by Hired. Hired matches outstanding people with the world's most innovative companies. At Hired, your dream job is waiting to apply to you. Instead of endlessly applying to companies hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with interesting opportunities. The best part is Hired is completely free to you. It won't cost you anything. In fact, they pay you to get hired. Head to Hired.com slash GSParty. Don't Google it. This URL is the only way to double the hiring bonus to $600. Once again, Hired.com slash GSParty. And now onto the show. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Welcome to JS Party, where it's a party every week with JavaScript. I'm Michael Rogers. I'm Alex Sexton. And our guest today is Paul Frizee. Say hi, Paul. Hey, everybody. Awesome. So we've got Paul on to talk about uh, the Beaker browser, which we'll get into a bit later. Uh, but first, we're just going to discuss this uh, new Node.js user survey. Um, everybody heard about Node.js? Everybody know what, know what that's about? I believe okay. it's pronounced Node.js. Yes, Node.js. There actually is somebody very prominent who always says it that way. And <laughs> it just takes too long to say. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, I think that we can just call it Node. Um, anyway, so there was this uh, great Node.js user survey. Um, about 1,400 people were surveyed uh, at the end of uh, 2016. And it took quite a while. Like, I was still at the foundation while this was happening, obviously. So it took a while to synthesize the results. But now, finally, like, all of the results and uh, some big kind of summaries and, and all the data are out there. Um, and it's been getting a lot of traction. A lot of people are talking about it. Um, any initial kind of thoughts or, or remarks about this from y'all? kind of interesting 50 percent of people are using containers that's a nice little insight there well yeah i mean another so i always i always forget like not everybody has listened to every podcast where we've talked about a survey um but there there's a uh, a really good um uh issue of the changelog actually where me and nadia came on and, and interviewed somebody about the github survey but one of the things that we got into is like it's very important to quantify you're never going to get a hundred percent of the people and you're not even going to get like a perfect distribution of people. Um, so it's important to just quantify which section of the community that you got um, in the survey. Right. And so what, what, what you tend to do, one really good thing in note is like, because you know that, that, that the community is doubling every year. If you ask people how long they've been doing node, you get a really good idea of like, you know, what the distribution is of the people that you ended up surveying, right? So with stuff like this, you, you tend to get, you know, people that have been using the language like two years or more, right? So that's, you know, this, like a, a longer term, slightly more engaged 25 percentile of the community. Um, and of that section of the community, half of them are using containers, which, which I think is not, not that surprising, but I guess kind of surprising. Yeah. Would you think it should be more or less? Well, I, I think it's surprising just in that there's a lot of people using Node.js and just doing front-end stuff, and a bunch of them showed up in this. And so, like, right. yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, a big portion of the 50% that said no to containers just aren't doing any back-end stuff. <laughs> right, right. Um, 
And how many of them are like just deploying with now and they don't even know that that's in a container, right? Like <laughs> there's already a lot of services that are like, you know, the, the containers are so like, um, like they're so hidden from you and so like pushed down in the stack that you don't even know. So, yeah. So that, that, that was a bit surprising. That's, that's pretty huge. Um, all things considered. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm glad that, that the foundation is talking about China a bit more. Um, I, I tried to talk about this, but China is like the fastest growing section of, of Node.js users and, and probably just developers in the world, to be honest. But um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, there, there, were, there were a lot, there are a lot of users in China. There's like, I think over a million <laughs> Node.js users in China now, um, which is like something like 12% of the entire community. So um, picked up a bunch of them with the survey. So that was cool. I, I feel like, like uh, we have a link that uh, we'll probably share in on the page if you're uh, reading the summary or something. It's uh, the Hacker Noon kind of roll up of some of the things. And I feel like mm -hmm. they asked some questions about, or, or rather they have like 39% uh, of respondents are using containers for front-end development. Um, and then they have some things like, uh, are you using Node? Uh, where is this? Got to zoom in for primary development focus, full stack versus front end and stuff like that. I, I feel like the number I want is how many people only use Node during your build step versus <laughs> uh, as a server. And I think <laughs> that number would be extremely interesting. And I don't think I see that here. Well, so you could figure it out from the data though. Um, okay. cause they shared the data. So like, you know, you, in this one where, um, so, so there, there's a graphic here, um, that basically says like, you know, uh, what are, what is your, your net, what is your focus? Um, and there's backend full stack, front end DevOps, desktop applications, mobile IOT and security. Right. And but that's, um, that's their job. But, they might but, program Python and then use yeah. node for, for yeah, yeah. So, so, tools so these are all just, these are all just checkboxes. Right. right. Um, and like what you really want to know is like, how many people checked the front end box and not the full stack or back end box, right? Like that, like how, or how many people just only checked the front end box? Like, no, that's I don't what you even like. Know, right? I'm a full stack developer, but I don't write Node servers in, at my job, like I do for fun or whatever. But like at my job, Stripe is a Ruby stack for the most part, right? So I mostly write Ruby if I'm writing back end. So I would consider myself a full stack developer. Um, but oh, so my, so so the way my day to day is 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 writing. Uh, JavaScript that either runs in Node as a build step or JavaScript that runs in the browser. Well, it looks like this question was posed in the context of using Node.js, not in the context of like what kind of developer are you. I would so be interested it, in the exact wording. Yeah, yeah, it was well. So I, I believe the wording was how is your organization using Node.js? Like, what is the the focus of your Node.js usage specifically? Okay. Um. Yeah. Which is like I. Full stack is just such a weird one because it's like, if you click back end and front end, is that not just full stack? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's it's interesting that like the the full stack metric here actually outpaces the front end metric. Like, um, what would you think I, it means this to say that I use Node.js for my front end? Yeah, I mean, so I like that the the desktop application, mobile and IoT stuff was on here too. Because it it really it, it it makes front end really mean like JavaScript web front end right like if your front end is an Electron app you're gonna click the desktop application box so that's great 
Yeah, yeah. Michael, do you like I imagine uh I know you used to have numbers on like downloads, but it's still like <laughs> it feels like based on what gets downloaded from npm that like over 50% of all use of npm is for building front end tooling, right? Well, so the, the the metrics on downloads from npm are yeah. a little bit harder to contextualize than you would think. So what what you kind of have to do is that you've got to look at how much these things are dependent on um, and basically try to filter out what you would expect the number of just things being pulled in as a dep is um, from like what, what, what you mo- might call like a, a edge dependency, like something that somebody directly pulls in and uses. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. Li- yeah, yeah. Like, like expresses is like an, an edge dependency. Like people, people don't like add it as a dep in a module that they push up yeah. very often. Right. Um, and when they do that, that module is probably like a full application. Um, so uh, like express is a very good like indicator of, you know, like how many, you know, how many downloads are happening for this particular web thing. Um, I think like, you know, like yarn is an edge dependency that um, is probably like a pretty good, like an accurate interpretation of people that are pulling, that are probably doing some front end stuff that are, that are touching one of those. Um, but, you know, like Babel gets pulled in by other tool chains. Webpack gets pulled in by other tool chains. And when you look at their download metrics, they, they can be pretty astronomical because they, you know, they're, they're sitting below the stack in so many different applications. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a little bit harder to quantify kind of what's going on there. Um, also, front end, <laughs> the front end depth chains appear to be longer. The, the depth graphs appear to be longer than back end. So that means that their their download metrics are going to be like uh, dramatically larger, just on average. Um, like, I mean, a good example of this is like re- request is dependent on quite a bit, um, and it's dependent on directly quite a bit. But there are small dependencies of request because uh, it's broken into a bunch of modules, and those modules are dependent on by almost nobody but request, and they have astronomical download numbers. <laughs> right? If you look up the uh, like top ten libraries uh javascript libraries that are distributed across the alexa top 1 million yep nope mm-hmm. is like number 12 or 8 or something like that it's it, it's, mm-hmm. it's extremely high up there and like virtually no one put it on their page but modernizer put it into modernizer and, and now it's one of the top scripts ever distributed on the internet but i just leave that other part out whenever i tell people that i wrote it <laughs> exactly um that's why i think like like if you're when you're trying to quantify people, download metrics are are a really problematic metric to look at. Didn't um, you give like several years of talks about download metrics? Uh, no, I, I gave several years of talks about uh, growth of package ecosystems and okay. uh, growth of users. That and the users are quantified not by the download metrics. <laughs> there's the, there's um, the spin every week. The spin. No, no, no. Like I, I, I actually. So, so when when we when the foundation put out the eight million number, uh, like of users, uh, I was like kind of on my way out of the foundation, and people really went after it and were very skeptical of it. And like, I'm really confident in that number. <laughs> um. And there's there's a couple reasons for that. One is that like it, it's it's a very good number from NPM that gives you a very good in, indication of actual users because it's, it's basically like um, npmjs.org website impressions, unique users that have engaged over a particular amount um, so, uh, over like I think like a three month span. So it's a very good indication of like how many people are like on the like you know engaging with the NPM website. 
you can definitely use NPM without using the website, but chances are in a three month period, you're going to engage with it if you're a user, unless you're in China. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's, there's a bunch of reasons for that. But before we get into that, um, we also have metrics on the nodejs.org website. Um, and because it's localized um, in so many different languages, it gives you a very good indication of the geographic distribution of node users. Um, doesn't give you a great indication of how many users because you, you, you can just use Node.js and never, ever touch the Node.js website. Like there's no, there's not really a reason to go there. Um, but it gives you a great distribution. So from the that. docs are on there. Well, so we, we did not have metrics on the API documentation uh, until about uh. a month ago. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So th this is, this is the website minus the API docs. Uh, Cause they're, oh, no. they're often like in their own section. Um, but anyway, so because you have that that 12%, because you know that the market share is about 12% and you know that that market share is basically missing from the 8 million number, um, you, you can go like, oh, okay, well, do we know how many uh, independent users are in China? Turns out that we do because virtually every Node.js user in China is a part of this forum called cnodejs.org, um, which is basically like a forum where people are speaking in Chinese and like, uh, they're supporting each other. They're, um, you know, answering different tech questions. And a lot of the answers to those tech questions are like just in time translations of different module or API documentation. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just a resource that, you know, virtually everybody is engaged in and, and their metrics really do back that up. And, and they can give us metrics on like how many active users that they have. Um, and then we can look at like, is that number 12% of that 8 million number? And we've, we've been able to do these correlations for years now. Um, and the NPM number like has always just kind of tracked perfectly with kind of what we think that the, the user, the user metrics are. So, um, yeah, I'm much more confident in the the number of users of Node.js metric um, than I think like it, it, that I've seen. We, we, we have, we have better data there than I think any other language has. I'll say that. Um, anyway, that's not really about this survey. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, yeah. I guess the reason I brought all that up is I'm skeptical a little bit of the data about how, like, because of the, the, the massive amount, what, what I assume is, in the area of 50% of people who only use Node as a build tool, but still use Node. Yeah. Like, how does yeah. that skew this stuff? Like, if you take out, like, there aren't a ton of people doing, like, builds inside of containers compared to people running servers in containers, I imagine. Um, but, uh, I mean, not that it's not done. We I do it personally, but uh, it's just more overhead for building a static asset. The, yeah, like, what does the containers number go up to if you take out the the build tool only people? I don't know. I, I just feel like because the two communities are there, it would be really mm -hmm. much more interesting to see this these these data split on those two points. So I did try to do this analysis once. Actually, there was a conference that you put together, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, for Front that, I, ops comp. Yes, exactly. Um, and one of the things that I did in that talk was that I. I parsed through like GitHub data that figured out how many people are interacting with packages. And then I came up with like some fuzzy ways to figure out if it's a front end or a back end package. You're this is what I was guessing. talking about whenever yeah, I yeah, made yeah. the joke like 10 minutes ago. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. 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 Um, there's, it's, it's not the greatest, but it was like kind of good enough. Um, and what you saw was that, um, 
front end packages had far more people engaging with them than back end packages. Um, and that that and that their growth was actually a lot higher. Um, NPM, I I think. I don't know if they're getting this from their download metrics or if they have a, a, a way of determining front end packages and then they can segment the users on the website because that would give them a very good indication of how many people are only engaged in front end stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, they've said that they, they estimate that more than half, like a, a little over half of um, node users are, are doing are doing front end stuff. Um, I don't think that they have like a great way to figure out um, if they're only doing front end stuff, sure. uh, which I think is what you want. And, well, and th I that, mean, that's primarily just really would be fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, as, as like, you know, uh, Node.js becomes a build tool for like anybody building a website. Um, the web is definitely larger than people that write backends, <laughs> like just period. Like we know sure. that. <laughs> um, yeah. And there are a lot fewer options. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm getting so, so one of the slides in this deck is a just a, a a big like a bunch of fucking logos just like a a ton of corporate logos for different companies and I, at this point like can we just put up an an empty slide that says people not using Node.js <laughs> like is that like just easier and more accurate <laughs> Yeah I'm I'm always skeptical of those things too like ever like uh, I'm uh I'm old school jQuery uh crew but, but jQuery, <laughs> it was amazing how many uh logos were the same uh across dojo move tools and jquery's websites it's like oh yeah ibm uses jquery ibm uses dojo ibm uses well ibm never used move tools let's let's uh but it, it it actually like uh i i think i pushed at the time for jquery to remove uh IBM's logo because they were very clearly a dojo shop for the long I mean they had tons and tons of contributors to dojo and like their marketing sites use jQuery so it was like oh yeah IBM uses jQuery and and I didn't really feel like that was fair um so I'm interested if it's like does like the skunk works labs team for people uh at x company use node right. or is like the API that that company is known for built on node because it's like you could say stripe uses node for sure but we don't have any like production services that I'm at least willing to mention here uh, that that use Node, you know? Does that, does that kind well, of make I, sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and this was something that I had when I was at the foundation, I had to talk with analysts a lot about because, you know, analysts heard for years about, you know, how, you know, enterprises are adopting Ruby or, you know, <laughs> and like what it always was was like, somebody's using a test framework somewhere written in Ruby. Right. Um, and, and it wasn't like they were actually moving off of Java. And it took a while to convince them that like, no, 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 no. Like people are building production applications with all of their traffic in these enterprises running through Node. This is not just like a, a thing in their front end tool chain. Um, right. Although they definitely do have it in their front end tool chain somewhere. <laughs> Um, but I think like, like, um, you know, outside of uh, enterprise and outside of like tech analysts that care about enterprise, a much more interesting story to me is what's happening with front end development. Like, um, I, I think that that this very huge shift in how we build front end applications and what, how much basically software infrastructure we're able to build up and evolve over time and continue to interdepend on, that being applied to kind of front end use cases and to like the broader web is just a much more interesting story to me than you know people building microservices that you know sit in front of their old ancient java apps like that's that's not very interesting to me um and so 
I know that there's like a lot of like weird identity politics about like Node.js's backend and and uh, you know whatever you know like we're whatever framework is cool right now. Um, but at the end of the day, like I think that one of the greatest successes for Node.js is going to be the change that it, that happens in the front end web um, that is facilitated by the platform. So. Sure. You know, one of the kind of interesting side effects of that is that it's also started to really dominate my time in Bash. Because, <laughs> right? Because you have so many build tools that you're you're running from the command line that are just Node.js packages. But like, I'm starting to have like a lot of commands showing up that people make, and it's an npm install. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's how you get new. Right now, that's the main way I get new commands to use inside of my command line. One benefit is that it's cross-platform. Cross-platform. Yep. Exactly. That's I think I think that's really the main benefit. I mean, one is that like you have this dependency network that you can tap into, right? So you have all this right. software infrastructure, you don't have to build everything from scratch. But two, it's like you know how to write I mean, bash. You, yeah, yeah, you don't have to yeah. write bash. Well, or I mean, like like you know, th- there's a lot of great things about Python, but like Python never had a gr- and still does not have a great cross-platform story. They're still pretty oh. on Windows, um, and so is Ruby, and so is a, like a, a lot of languages just never really did the work to be a first-class citizen the way that Node did, like in 2012 yeah of course windows is trying to change that with their unix stuff hell no i haven't tried that has anybody here tried that i have it's not there yet yeah so the 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 problem is that like as a subsystem like if you you treated it like a better vm or something it's it's quite good but as soon as you want to like use like a regular windows thing and have it tap into that sub file system like things go a little haywire so yeah um um, anyway, like I think one thing, Alex, too, to to point out is that like I think that this survey definitely picked up a section of the community that is more backend uh, than than what you would think of as the average, right? Like, yeah. it, it, look at you look at like the number of uh, respondents that work with databases directly. Like that's yeah. really high. It's like ninety five percent. Like that's not <laughs> like yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think it's like the kind of people that wanted to spend you know twenty minutes filling out a Node.js survey. Uh, just, <laughs> are going to be more likely to be back-end people. Sure. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know? I'd be in the 5%. I, I don't think I ever touch production databases, at least. I, I try to write a database about every month yeah. um, <laughs> from scratch, but <laughs> I'm a f- oh. no. <laughs> uh, You know what I would be interested to see is which databases people are using with Node. Um, there, there was data on the, in the survey that was conducted the prior year on that. Um, oh, yeah. it, a, lot of, a lot of MongoDB <laughs> still. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, they're <laughs> yeah. they're a billion dollar company now, right? I think they just hit it. Uh, yeah, or eight yeah. billion. It's full not, unicorn it was something status. insane. It's full <laughs> unicorn status. Yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, for what it's worth, Tripe does not use Node. It does use MongoDB. <laughs> Well, not, to store fi- not to store lot. financial transactions. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, it, we store them there. We just store them a couple other places too. Just in case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I've, I've but, been hearing that Mongo's really ironed out a lot of those bugs at this point. I don't know if that's true. I haven't used them, but that's the story they're trying to get out there. Is that yeah, we had growing pains, but you know, they made a lot of money. They got to be as big as they are, and then they put in the engineering effort necessary to stop losing data. Yeah. And if, if that's you, true. There you go. The, the the real thing was just like for the longest time, and maybe they've changed this, but like even after they added good transactional integrity and they could make those kinds of claims, it wasn't they didn't the put default. on default. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and 
and like as soon as you enabled it like mongodb is pretty slow and like one of the reasons why people gravitated towards it just for so long was because of these like claims that they made about how fast it was some of them were were quite absurd though like um i remember there was a blog post about how mongodb is faster than memcache for writes and um the reason is because memcache has a re- response when you write <laughs> and the protocol for mongodb didn't have a response for write you just write it to the socket and you're like i bet it's stored <laughs> and so basically what this metric was was testing is how fast can you write write messages to a socket <laughs> yeah. udp versus tcp um, yeah. the udp of databases <laughs> yeah. uh we uh, Stripe had uh, backed him for a little bit to to do work on this, and for the most part, he's done it on his own. Though uh, Kyle Kingsbury, better known as uh, A for uh, A P H Y R, has uh, a tool called Jepson, and Jepson tests this type of stuff on databases. Uh, mm-hmm. And he has a series called Call Me Maybe. Uh, so if you search for uh, A for Call Me Maybe, um, there's some really good stuff on. Um, on how good like Mongo is with what settings and so essentially like in order to make Mongo safe you have to put it on the absolute most max settings <laughs> even though three down is called like guaranteed safe or you know something uh, <laughs> so it's like you have to go too past guarantee safe to get guaranteed safe but but I will uh, I don't know how much is public or, or not so I, I shouldn't say too much but, but Stripe has been on MongoDB for a long time uh, and because we have a lot of dependencies there, it, we're slower to upgrade than than you know someone who's using it as a pet project. And I think we've seen a lot of great performance improvements, even on like point release updates to Mongo, um, and that's been encouraging at least. Uh, but but you know every few years we're like, should we keep this? And and generally it's like the the benefits it gives is, are good enough, and we're good enough at keeping it up, and we run enough, uh, you know game days to to know that when it goes down we can fix it in 3.2 they they swapped out the underlying like uh subsystem for for something or other and I, i think that made a huge difference this episode is brought to you by TopTal, a global network of top freelance software developers, designers, and finance experts. If you're looking for contract or freelance opportunities, apply to join TopTal to work with top clients like Airbnb, Artsy, Zendesk, and more. When you join TopTal, you'll be part of a global community of developers who have the freedom and flexibility to live where they want, travel, attend TopTal events all over the world, and more. And on the flip side, if you're looking to hire developers, designers, or finance experts, TopTal makes it super easy to find qualified talent to join your team. Head to TopTal.com, that's T-O-P-T-A-L.com, and tell them Adam from the Genius Log sent you. And by Sentry. Sentry is an open source error tracking application that shows you every crash in your stack as it happens. It gives you details to prioritize, identify, reproduce, and fix each issue. They also give you information to support your team, so you can use that information to reach out to those affected. Head to changelog.com slash sentry. Start tracking your errors today for free. Get off the ground with their free plan. Once again, changelog.com slash sentry. Tell them we sent you. And now back to the show.
All right, so now we're going to dive into the Beaker browser. Uh, Paul, why don't you give us some history here? I know that you've been working on this for, for quite a while now. Um, so mm-hmm. give us some, some history of kind of why you started the project, what the, the mission is, and then uh, we'll get into some of the more recent developments. All right, cool. So we started Beaker about a year ago, a year and a month. They actually got started at a decentralized web summit. Now, like right before that, I had spent about two years working on Secure Scuttlebutt with Dominic Tarr. And Secure Scuttlebutt was a pure, it actually still is, it's a purely peer-to-peer social network. And so Dominique had come up with this really cool kind of cryptographic network for exchanging different like uh, feeds of of JSON, basically. And the technology kind of feels like, you know, it's these logs of data. So it's almost like a Twitter, right? Everybody has their own feed and they publish these JSON blobs. So we took that and we said, okay, we could make a little peer-to-peer social network on that and, you know, see what happens. So we got that to work and uh, got a little community going and it was really cool and definitely a great learning experience. But around the time, you know, about a year ago, I was getting to the point where I had some, really one of the big goals I had was how could we make it so other people could build on that tech? Right. Because the peer-to-peer stuff is really, really cool, but it's also like, yeah, we have a peer-to-peer app, but it's not, like part of a platform, and it doesn't really change the situation that much. Like we want to be able to have something like not just a peer-to-peer Twitter, but also a peer-to-peer email and a peer-to-peer Reddit and a peer-to-peer whatever, right? You want to get away entirely from the services model if you're interested in decentralization. So the stuff we had done with Secure Scuttlebutt was really cool, but it was hard for other developers to hook into the stack and start making their own apps. So I walked away from that and was thinking, okay, well, we have Electron now. And Electron is a really nice wrapper around Chromium. And so it would be nice if we could just take that and just go ahead and build an entirely new browser off of it and then take some of these new protocols that people people are working on. I got a yelling cat out here. Take some of the protocols that people are working on and just add them into the browser. Make them new native web platform tech. And hey, you know what? I got to get this cat. Give me a second. <laughs> All right. That's, that was hilarious. If only Rachel uh, could be here. <laughs> yep. So, right. Um, so we took some of So that was the idea. And there was, when I started on it, I decided I'm going to branch out from just SSV, just secure Scuttlebutt. I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at uh, I'll take a look at some of the other protocols that were being worked on, and the decentralized web summit was really good timing because it was a bunch of different protocol teams getting together to talk about what they were doing. So IPFS was there, the DAT project was there. Um, I remember Media Chain, a couple of different uh, uh, blockchain-based things. Zuko was there with Zcash. So I talked to a lot of people started to try to gauge interest for this idea, like, hey, what if we had a browser we could throw all these things into? And so that's how it got started. And it took maybe like six months to get a browser UI on top of Electron, you know, like get all the basics working. And then I integrated um, IPFS and DAT. And then over time, I just I took IPFS out and focused on DAT and kept on packaging it and, and fixing it up. And now we have Beaker. Awesome. So you mentioned that there's like a bunch of different protocols that people are experimenting with right now. 
Yeah. Uh, which which ones have you kind of gone down the rabbit hole of supporting, and and <laughs> which ones uh, have you kind of solidified at this point? So the the three I could speak most authoritatively on would be uh, DAT, Secure Scuttlebutt, and IPFS. Um, DAT and IPFS are basically variations on BitTorrent. They're real, real similar, and they're both really solid technologies. Um, and then, you know, I, I know about the, the different blockchains that, at least like at an arm's distance, I could tell you how they work. Um, but I haven't gone too deep into them. I'm kind of waiting for the for the blockchain space to stabilize a little bit and maybe get away from proof of work. I'm not a huge, huge fan of proof of work. Um, but pretty much pretty much the, the two that I think are the most interesting right now are DAT and IPFS. And so and do you support both of those protocols right now? No, it's not at the moment. Yeah, this is a this is an interesting thing. And actually, we're really open to hearing from other people about this. DAT and IPFS are really similar, like really similar. Um, they both use the same mental model from BitTorrent, which is this idea that you have um, crypto addresses. So either like a hash of the content or um, a public key. And that is now like the basis of your URLs. And then you share some files on this network and other people that download from you can then rehost for you. Right. So as you have more peers in the network, there are more, more hosts for a piece of content. And so that the network sort of automatically scales up to make sure that any file that gets popular is you can find it quickly and nobody's getting having to give away a whole lot of bandwidth. So they're they're so similar that when we were for a while, we supported both. But at one point we kind of stopped and said, how do we communicate to users which one they ought to use? Right. Because maybe the biggest difference between them is that IPFS is really, really narrowly focused or mainly focused, I'll say, on static pieces of content that are addressed by content hashes. I think they maybe tend to use a SHA-3. Don't don't quote me on that. And then uh, DAT tends to focus much more on uh, archives of data that change over time. And so those are addressed by public keys. Now this, like, I just saying that probably puts a three three or four people to sleep. So I don't know how we would say it inside the browser that's like, oh yeah, well obviously I want to use IPFS for this for this particular case. So we, we ended up dropping it because we just didn't really understand how we'd be getting a lot of benefit to users other than the fact that you might be able to browse, you know, two protocols and maybe the content that you want is on IPFS and not that. So we're relatively happy with it right now. It's let us stay really focused and we're just gonna keep on, you know, we'll stay light on our feet. If IPFS ends up blowing up, we'll we'll get it in there. It's it's almost like you know you're you're just waiting for somebody to send a pull request. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, that that's really interesting. So you said that DAT is very good at data that changes over time. Um, so like I, I I'm a regular web developer. I wanna I wanna shove my application into DAT and host it on this network. Like, what does that workflow look like right now? Well, it's actually it's kind of like a like a from from the perspective of using the software, it feels a little bit like using Git. Feels a little bit like using npm. You have this uh, area that's like your your local staging area, so you can work on your website. And this your website's just a folder on your computer somewhere. So you'll be working on it and making these local changes to it, and and that's the the staging area there. And you can open it up in the browser and work on it. And then once you're happy with it, you hit the publish button, and that's pretty much the whole story. At that point, your browser it's going to, in the background, make the changes available to the swarm and anybody that's subscribed to that swarm, um, which happens if they visit your site, they'll 
pull down the updates you made. And so more the, the, the point that we're trying to hit is that it feels just like using tools that we're already super familiar with. And so that the, the peer-to-peer network by and large is hidden from you. And if it's working really well, it should feel pretty magical. So how similar would you say this is to season five of Silicon Valley? <laughs> uh, you know, some pretty bad, sh- bad stuff goes down inside season five. So I'm going to say 99% same thing. We've, we're had to cover up a lot of uh, scandals while we're working on this thing. Got it. <laughs> I mean, that's it's the new internet, internet, right? It's the, yeah. That's what, that's what the, the current, the, whatever. Anyways. Um, <laughs> Uh, I guess we talked a little bit about like the what, like how and the how. Uh, but can in your like least tinfoil hat way explain <laughs> why someone would be interested in in using this? Oh yeah, yeah. I think actually you got to throw away the tinfoil hat, right? Because you know the the tinfoil hat version would be it's censorship resistant, so the government can't take you down. Or um, the other one would be that it's, and I mean, it, it, there's there's some interesting things to be said about that, but the, the main reason that you take these texts and you put them into the browser is that you want to make it do new cool things. So for Beaker with the with these peer-to-peer texts, like you can create a website off of your computer and it's just a button inside the browser. You just hit make me a new website and it's going to allocate a new domain for you and then you can immediately share the link with somebody and you're done. You've created a whole new website. And that principle ends up actually being really interesting because, because it's so easy to make a, a website like that, it's actually even exposed to some web APIs. And so an application that you're using on your computer can actually then use the peer-to-peer network to publish files or to consume files or anything like that. And that's how you set the, the, the start of a stack for building applications that don't need services at all. You're just having these totally peer-to-peer applications, and now you can have better personal privacy because you're exchanging uh, files directly from one computer to another. Um, And you can do some cool open source stuff because whenever you're using the application, all of the source code goes down onto your computer, right? You go to a DAT website, there's no service somewhere that you're having to talk to. You got all the source code. So you can actually fork that website and create a whole copy of it that you control and you can just start modifying it right away. So the... The privacy story is really good, but so is the sort of open source, open architecture story. And if we can, if we can really flush, flush out that entire stack, we can get to the point where you don't have to use these databases that are on somebody's server somewhere, which what you could call a data silo, right? It's somebody else's computer. Now you're just publishing content by writing it to your computer and you control the keys that say that, you know, you're the author. And then other people get the files off of you, and now you're just totally in control of uh, of your your presence on the web. Um, okay, what uh, I I'm trying to uh, that was a really good sentence. If I <laughs> am malicious, um, yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk about that. So how like how many people do I have to pretend to be before I control your content uh, maliciously or something like I. Like, is there a quorum type situation? Am I GPG signing everything I write so it's authenticated? And like, what does that whole security system work like? Because if there, you know, enough malicious people and a small enough site, it seems like they could kind of change all the content of that person's website since they're sharing the the bulk of it. 
Yeah, no, the, the, the key there is that um, there's no number of people that would start to do that. It's not like there's a civil attack or anything that you could do to take over somebody's website. Uh, the way it works is that each website in the DAT network has a key pair, and the public key acts as the, uh, the address of it. So instead of an IP address, you use a public key address. And then there's a private key, and that private key is controlled by whoever generated the site, and they keep that private key protected. And so anytime that they change the site, they sign the update that um, they push out into the network. And so anybody that's looking for a website and want to make sure that it's an authentic piece of content from that website, they check the signature on that content against the address of the site they're I trying see. to look up. So the key is that, the, or sorry, the key is about the, the prime thing to know there is that the address is the public key, which means that mm -hmm. you can't spoof a different private key. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you could make a totally different website. So how recognizable are... Like the so if the the website is just a public key, what stops me from saying, oh, here go to Paul's website, and it's just my website that is an exact copy of yours, but now it's my right. public key. Um, is there SSL certs? Is there EV? Is there uh, any like how do we kind of manage the whole uh, like identity situations? That uh, ring of trust or that that type of stuff. You know, that's a that's an interesting question because we actually could start to get into bring up trust, blow up trust ideas at some point. What we've done at the moment is, it, first of all, just to answer the very basic of your question, this, the, the public keys are 64 characters long. They're, they're hex strings, so that you're never going to be able to look at it and say, yeah, that's the right address. Yeah, right. Um, I would argue that that's probably usually been the case also for IP addresses too. You know, similar story, you never would right. send out your Which is why DNS is, is so important, with, with yeah. SSL certs, right? Right. So we don't have anything quite like SSL certs yet, because that's a, that's a whole big social enterprise to have SSL certs exist. Right. And so what we've done is we do have a DNS um, solution, and it's kind of kind of a, kind of a hack. It's uh, we basically host. How do I describe this? Well, we we have on the we we make you run an HTTPS server. So if I have beakerbrowser.com, you have to run an HTTPS server. And then under a .well-known folder, you put a, a file titled dat. And this file has the key, the, the kind of the raw URL for the dat that you want to have at that address. And so what happens is whenever I try to type into my, my browser uh, dat colon slash slash beakerbrowser.com, what Beaker will do is it'll contact HTTPS BeakerBrowser.com and it'll look for that .wellknown slash dat file. And if it's there and a, a valid dat URL comes in that the content of that file, it'll then go ahead and say, okay, that's the dat address you're trying to look up. I see. So it kind of piggybacks off of the centralized system just as yeah. a uh, kind of verification system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, because uh, yeah, that, I, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It gives us the security we need. It's relatively easy to deploy. Um, we thought about doing something with DNSSEC, uh, but DNSSEC doesn't really have the adoption or the confidence in the community that I think really, really would make that a good long-term solution. And you can only use DNSSEC with like three top-level domains. There's not a whole lot of adoption out there. So right. we decided that this would be a good compromise. That's cool. That's, that's a tough problem to solve. Um... 
are there uh like so what is the like premise uh like you do this full-time uh as a business and you sell it off do you uh did you get a grant did you do you just have a bunch of money from the lottery and you're working <laughs> for fun no lottery yet um we actually let me break that up into two answers the first um there's code for science is the team that's actually building the dat protocol they are a nonprofit. they're grant funded um that's I max still or that's max ogden yeah okay. runs that and then um matthias booze is the the lead um protocol engineer and um you'll know him on the web as macintosh uh macintosh but with an f in there and they, they, I think it's the Knight Foundation, the Sloan Foundation, and maybe others um, that have funded them. And the so Arthur they, P. Sloan Foundation. I don't yeah, know if that's the yes. same one. I just I'd listen actually, to a lot of NPR. Or whatever. Yeah, a lot of NPR. The, right? the, yeah. This this week we're on NPR instead of the Changelog Network. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I don't know if it's the same one, but uh, yeah. So they're they're a nonprofit. It they're, is. They're specifically okay. Cool. They're they're specifically focused on um, helping out. Um, I would say governments and uh, academics, uh, scientists and things like that, help them with data archiving. That's the mission for the Code for Science and the mission for the DAP um, protocol. And so we showed up with the Beaker project and really liked what they had done with the protocol and liked um, working with them. And so we, we went ahead and said, OK, well, we're going to apply this into this browser as well. Um, and so we're a separate group. Um, making the Beaker browser, and we're calling we're, we're Blue Link Labs is our our uh, company. We're a for profit, and we're bootstrapped so far. It's uh, myself and uh, co-founder Tara Vansel, and uh, we are planning. Uh, well, we have a basically what we've done to try to fund ourselves is put together a public super peer. This is a, a website called Hashbase. You can find it on hashbase.io. And the idea with this is that this is a peer-to-peer -peer network, and it does really great with your content if, you, um, if you're popular. But if you don't have anybody that's subscribing to what you've done, um, if you turn off your computer, you're not going to be able to seed the, the files for it. So you need to have somebody on the network that you can trust to actually keep your content online. And so the super peer, uh, the hash base, it's basically a peer up in the cloud that you can uh, push the files to. And then you can comfortably turn your computer off and know that other people will still be able to find it. So and it's kind of like a, a centralization. Of <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, so it's an it's, unfortunate side effect, but I, I, don't, I don't think it's a bad idea. It's a, it's a great idea. Uh, I, I think the decentralized thing is important, not as a default uh thing but not as necessarily like a constant um and so um especially yeah, well, con content that, that goes off so i'm just uh, that's break. yeah that i i mean i do actually agree with your point there that uh decentralization is the default is is the the good starting point we we have actually have two answers for you on that because i think yeah, there is a fair point there and that's centralizing it again and first of all we what we call hashbase is a fungible service at fungible like you can completely replace it at any point and we think that's actually really important for this whole idea um, it's kind of like uh similar to a federation with the idea that one of the services that does it is just as good as one of the others for the most part so we a hash base it's open source and we'll probably make uh, variations that are totally compatible with it that are easier to self-deploy 
And yeah, it is a service that is being run by somebody else, but you could easily jump off of our version of it and onto some other public peer service, some other super peer service, and it, nobody would even know because what this service is offering you is totally in the background. There's no data silo on this thing. It's just a, a little you know, utility that kind of handles work for you um, hidden in the background. So that's, that's, we, we think that's actually really important because so much of what we're doing is, is geared toward decentralization. And, and so we want to make sure that people understand that. The other answer that I have about the centralization aspect is that um, for my money, I think probably where this all leads to is um, people being able to run servers at home, like a little box, a piece of hardware that you can plug in and, and just forget about. But it'll keep your, your content online in the same way that a, that a public super peer would. And, and then you have just a much, much better privacy story. You could have one of these home pieces of hardware sitting there doing a search query for you and, and nobody would have to, you wouldn't have to talk to Google for it. So it's, that's the sort of thing that's going to take some time because you actually have to get the, the software put in the right place and, and the, uh, the hardware has to be built or at least you have to find a good, you know, um, yeah. desktop somewhere, but and everyone puts it behind their 10-year-old Linksys router. Exactly, right. And then ideally, they just forget about it because you, know, <laughs> you don't have to keep it up to date or anything. Awesome. So this this has been great. Um, I think we're, we are we got to start wrapping up the show now. So we're going to get into picks. Um, everybody have personal picks that they brought. Um, why don't we start with you, Alex? Uh, this week, I'm going to go with another internationalization pick. I think I started the season off uh, with uh, in an internationalization pick, but uh, Globalize JS is um, a collection of tools for number formatting uh, and message formatting and uh, and currency and all that kind of stuff. More importantly, though, it does parsing, um, which is one of the harder things to do. So, um, like, I'm typing in numbers that have commas as decimal points, and then trying to turn that into a number in JavaScript is a much harder thing than rendering, like formatting something with, you know, moment.js or something like that. The same is true of dates. It can parse dates uh, in a similar way. And that's really difficult. Um, and so that's been a lifesaver for me in my real job this week uh, and, and lately. So it, it, it's completely backed off of this CLDR, which is the Unicode Common Locale Data Repository. Uh, and that's where they keep, like, the standard set of all the locale information. Um, and so... It's it's good. It's great. Uh, it's what Twitter uses um, to localize their website, if, if that's helpful. So uh, it's actually a JavaScript Foundation uh, project pr previously, the jQuery Foundation. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, the message format implementation inside of it is mine that I wrote. Uh, but uh, at Stripe, we don't use that one. We pulled in a different one uh, before we added Globalize, and so we don't use my library. So it doesn't count. All right. That's my pick. <laughs> All right, Paul, you you have a pick for us today. Uh, does this have to be a module? Can it be a service? What is the what are the? It rules can be anything. This? It can be a book. It can be a passion. It it doesn't even have to be in tech. Be be powder be oil, oil, oil powder. Ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, you know what? Give me a second. Can you do yours first, and I'll, I'll sure. think of something for you. Sure, sure. So mine actually is in tech this time. So I, I'm not just gonna throw out non tech things. Uh, it's called semantic release. Um, so uh, I've just been kind of 
feeling the weight of maintaining a lot of modules <laughs> that people use. Um, and as I've been writing new code and new modules, um, I've been thinking about ways that I can, you know, automate things a bit more upfront and do some work upfront to make the longer term maintenance of it a lot easier. One thing that I've been using is this, this tool called semantic release. Basically, if you, you know, use commit as in and, and do like these proper kind of commit messages, um, denoting features or fixes and stuff like that semantic release will just automate the releases um entirely so the, the pushes to npm and everything will just happen automatically um so th this is this is like really great when you combine it with a couple other tools so you know i have for these new modules that i'm running i have like 100 percent test coverage and i so i and i point cover all that at um and uh I, i'm using this this cool tool called commitizen so there's actually like an npm command to you know write proper commit messages that using husky which is like a way to to install git hooks into a project when you when you're messing with, around with it locally so you can kind of you know verify all of this stuff and give people a really easy path to contribute and then as i'm pulling in patches you know i can tell if it's completely tested and as soon as it lands with these proper commit messages like the, just the entire release process is automated um it's really hard to get to this kind of level of like nice tooling and automation in existing projects. Uh, so it's not going to help me out with requests anytime soon, <laughs> but um, I'm really loving it for my new projects. So check out semantic release on GitHub. Paul. Well, I don't think I got a pick for you, but I will say I am enjoying watching game of Thrones last season. So I'll, I'll, <laughs> if you haven't heard about it, it's a little show on HBO. It's real fun. I highly recommend it. Yeah, I, I had I had not heard of it. Um, yeah. Can you spell that? Some guy George R R. I don't know. Uh, is it is it Martinez? I think Martinez. I think you're right. Yeah, look it up. It's pretty cool. I think it's Dinklage. Dinklage. Oh yeah. No. <laughs> All right, and that's our show. Uh, thanks for everybody on the live stream uh, and everybody listening at home. Thank you. All right, thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Thanks also to our sponsors, TopTile, Century, and Hired. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. This show is produced by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and edited by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you've been hearing is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We do this show live every Friday at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern, noon Pacific. So join us at changelaw.com slash live. Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>